Um, welcome to the last of this term's meetings of the Aristotelian Society. We begin again on the 9th of January next term, uh, when the discussion of this topic will be continued, I think. Um, tonight we have uh, Daniel Rothschild, who holds a PhD from Princeton and is currently a postdoctoral research fellow at All Souls, having briefly taught at Columbia between before coming to All Souls. Um, his main interests are in the philosophy of language, especially in theoretical pragmatics and semantics, and he's published papers on conditionals and modals, and tonight will speak to us on the topic of expressing credences. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for having me. Um, so it's going to be an unusual talk, and then I'm going to get a presentation while you guys aren't, but I assure you that I'm going to enjoy it a lot. Um, and I, I'll try to be as clear as possible, maybe occasionally um, write things on that little sheet. So um, let me sort of orient um, a little bit the general topic. In the last 10 years or so, there have been a lot of discussions about the nature of semantic content and the nature of and in particular, ways of talking about um, about certain parts of language which don't treat them as truth conditional, but rather treat them as something else. And of course, this is an old topic going back quite a while, but recently, especially with the discussion of relativism and um, some discussions in meta-ethics of expressivism, this has become a sort of particularly prominent topic. I'm not going to talk about this generally at a very like broad theoretical level. Rather, what I want to do is go through one very simple case where I think a kind of expressivist, a kind of at least non-propositional view is appealing and try to spell out what the view is and what kind of problems um, emerge for it and also try to answer um, some of those problems. So um, the, the two things that I want to start talking about are two uses that people make of possible worlds in um, both philosophy of language and thought and in um, epistemology, or rather formal epistemology. And because it turns out that these two uses lead to certain tensions, and, then, and, and the expressivism that I'm going to discuss is an attempt at resolving that tension. So these are probably very familiar to a, a, a lot of you here. The first use of possible worlds is just the use of a set of possible worlds to represent the content of a thought. So um, a set of all possible worlds, a set of all possibilities that are, let's say, conceivable to us, or we could also talk about metaphysical possibility. It's not a distinction I'm interested in for these purposes right now. Um, and when you have a thought like, it's raining, you might think that that separates all the worlds into those worlds, which are you know, complete specifications of what the world might be, or, objects themselves that are completely specified, those worlds in which it's raining and those worlds in which it's not raining. Of course, you need to resolve the indexical content in some way um, before you do that. But this is a very natural way of talking um, that, that's particularly um, used not just, it's, like, it's used less, I think, when people talk about representing beliefs as when people talk about representing the semantic content of sentences, the 
truth conditions of sentences can be captured by a set of possible worlds. And also, a total belief state can be captured by a set of possible worlds, those worlds that are compatible with everything you believe, which the actual world might or might not be um, one of those, depending on whether you have any false beliefs or not. So this is the first very standard use. Um, the second use is the use that comes from probability theory, um, or rather the sort of particular application of probability theory, where we think about someone's graded beliefs, not all out beliefs, but beliefs that something is likely, belief that something has a 50% chance. We think of those as being captured by a probability function, which is representing all their graded beliefs. And the way the set of possible worlds comes in is the set of possible worlds becomes the probability space over which that probability function is defined. So, um, you know, if there's a probability function which is capturing migrated beliefs, then for any proposition, which is any set of possible worlds, I'm using these terms interchangeably here, that probability function will assign some number to that proposition, a number between zero and one. And whatever number it's, it assigns represents the degree of belief, one being, of course, full belief and zero being um, full disbelief. So that's the second very standard use of possible worlds in, you know, roughly speaking, formal epistemology, although it's really like, you know, it's not sophisticated formal epistemology. This is just the most basic thing you could say about it. Um, what I want to point out now is, and, and this is certainly not an original point to me. In fact, in general, I'm not going to litter this talk with references to, to, to every single author who's talked about these points, but those are all in the paper, and, and you know, certainly bring them up if you want to. Um, sentence one, it's likely the euro is doomed. Um, this is a sentence which seems to express, well, so this is a standard indicative sentence in a certain sense. And in general, in semantic theory, we think of a standard indicative sentence as having its meaning characterized by a set of possible worlds, a set of possible worlds that it's true in. So all the worlds in which the euro is in fact doomed. Um, and let me just say as a caveat, I realize that some people cut content more finely than this, especially um, for philosophers as opposed to formal semanticists. I, I actually think the issues about at least more fine-grained content than possible worlds are not uh, are, are orthogonal to the points I make here. So it's fine if you think that the propositions express something a little more fine-grained than a set of possible worlds. But rather, the question is whether you're in this sort of general truth conditional framework. Um, so from this perspective of formal semantics, we should think that the sentence, it's likely the euro is doomed, expresses a proposition, which is a set of possible worlds. But from the perspective of formal epistemology, or just generally the way we think about the world, using probability theory to, to, to talk about subjective beliefs, we might think that we should, model what, we should model the content of this sentence by a probability measure. It's saying, this is describing a certain feature of a probability measure. And describing a feature of a probability measure is different from picking out a particular proposition, a set of possible worlds. Rather, it's saying, oh, look, we're talking about measures in which some number is assigned to this proposition, rather than saying, we're talking about these particular worlds. So that's the, the sort of initial tension there is between these two ways of speaking. Um, there's a really simple resolution of this tension. Um, and I'm not actually sure it's wrong, but I want to state, state some problems with it. Simple resolution of this tension is to think that a sentence like one is, 
is in fact ascribing what I'll call a probabilistic belief to some person or a group. So in other words, you think of a sentence like one as saying like, for instance, in the toy theory, to saying like, I believe, according to my credences, um, it's likely that the euro is doomed. So it was a self-ascription. And a self-ascription we can think of as just a normal proposition. We think about it as a fact of the world, what people's different beliefs are, in, including their graded beliefs. And so it's just a fact about certain possible worlds that I have certain credences in them. And sentence one is just saying we're in the world where my credence in the euro being doomed are high. That's like what I take that's likely to mean on, on this view. So something I'm not going to do is discuss extensively why I think that program faces serious problems. But let me sort of sketch a few of these. And there's um, much more in some of the recent literature and some of the older literature, too. Um, the first one I would say is it's not clear whose credences um, a sentence like one is really talking about. There are problems with thinking it's just the speaker's credences. I mean, I can wonder whether it's likely that the euro is doomed. And in doing so, it doesn't seem like I'm wondering whether I think the euro is doomed. Rather, I'm trying to come to a view about that, not you know, sort of looking into my mind to discover what my credences are. Um, so that might push you to think that there's kind of a, it's more objective. It's like something like objective chance, whatever that is. Um, but it's clear that these sentences can be used in ways which don't seem to correspond to at least, you know, purely kind of natural sentences. I can, I can wonder whether it's likely that Ronald Reagan was president on January 1st, 2009. I mean, I'm let's say 1989 is a more reasonable question to wonder because I've forgotten exactly how the order of presidential um, transitions goes. But I'm not wondering about, you know, some objective probability. Rather, I'm wondering about, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to go through sort of my own memory and try to figure out what there is. I mean, some kind of evidential probability might be the way to go. But I just wanted to point out the kind of problems you have um, when you try to treat sentences like one as descriptions of probabilistic belief or just talking about objective chance. Um, what I'm not going to do is, so as I said, I'm not going to make that argument. What I'm going to do is talk about a view which I'm labeling, or really a class of views and then a particular instance of it, which I'm labeling expressivism about probabilistic um, beliefs. And I take this class of views to be characterized by two things. One is a negative thesis um, that probably probability sentences, sentences like one, which I'm just going to call probability sentences, and later on I'll call them P sentences for various reasons, um, that these sentences do not express facts. They do not have as semantic values propositions. They are not factual sentences. Um, and that, so that's a negative thesis, that's, which you, know, you might call non-factionalism. And the positive thesis is a much more wishy-washy one. And I'll, I don't mean to sort of hang to every word of it, and I think in some sense the less important one, but the positive thesis part of expressivism, I'll take it to be that assertions of these sentences urge certain credences. So they're, they are to some degree suggestions to adopt certain credences. I actually don't think this is, this is sort of a typical way of spelling out what expressivism is. I don't think that is actually a key component of this view. I think, as you'll see, this view could be modified if you have slightly different views about what these sentences are doing. Um, so, and here is where I wish I had my slideshow, but we're just going to, uh, I might have to draw a little drawing. But um, 
Luckily, I'm an excellent artist, so can all <laughs> rest sure it's going to be great. Um, so the, the way I view this general class of semantic theories, and really almost any semantic theory in which you abandon truth conditional semantics and do something else, is as having a two-tiered um, system. So on the one hand, you have the semantics of the language. And the semantics of the language is some kind of systematic assignment of some kind of formal object to the sentences in the language. So, you know, in linguistics, people often say it's a compositional, a composition needs to satisfy some principle of compositionality. I'm not sure if there's any good reason to think that, but it needs to be anyway systematic in some way to explain the regularity with which we can use language and the fact that we can use an infinity of possible constructions and so on. Um, so that's, that's one component. That, that component consists of sort of a mapping between sentences to some formal object. Um, now, the second component are the pragmatic, um, the bridging principles. And the bridging principles are principles that explain to you what it is to assert a sentence given that it has a certain semantic value. So the bridging principles are a way of connecting semantic values to speech acts, and ideally you should also connect semantic values to things like believing and questioning sentences and so on. But in the first instance, assertion is usually what we start with, and the others are hopefully um, easily followed. So now I'm going to, if it's all right, use this thing to draw a little bit. Um, should we carry it over here so my voice carries? Yes. This view, which I'm, this sort of picture of thinking about things, I don't take to be actually particularly controversial. I think it's often implicit. And I think that this picture of thinking about things applies even for people who believe that sentences express propositions. It's just that we often take parts of it um, sort of on faith. So you have the sentence that's expressed, and then you have, um, so this is, I'm going to talk about a factualist picture in this way. So these are, just normal semantics when sentences express propositions. So here, so there's a sentence expressed, and then there's a proposition. And I take it that what connects these two is some combination of the semantics of the language, that is, the rules for telling you what the meaning of the sentence are in context, plus you know, the sort of elements of context dependence. And I just, and this is like a big cheat in this paper. I'm just not talking about context dependence here. I'm abstracting away from it because I think it's not where the action really is here. But you, you can take that up with me. I realize this is illegible, but it makes me happy. So let's just, just keep going. So, okay, actually, there shouldn't be an arrow here. There's a, there's a lack of an arrow there. Um, now, so we, we have down here the pragmatic bridging principles. Well, in fact, we'll just have one principle. I can't spell principle, but that's okay. Um, and then here we have the speech act. So there's actually, even if you can't read any of these words, I've said them enough that you probably can like, figure out which word is where. So um, the thought is, is that in the factualist case, the semantics plus some issue of context dependence determines a proposition corresponding to the sentence. 
The pragmatic bridging principle is really simple, and this is why we don't often even talk about this. The pragmatic bridging principle is, if a sentence expresses some proposition, then an assertion of that sentence is, let's say, a suggestion to believe that, or, or an instruction to accept that. I, I, I'm not sure, like, I'm not a good, I'm not good at this kind of, like, speech act pragmatics, so, like, maybe that's not your preferred way of saying it, but insert whatever your preferred way of saying what assertion is and relate that to the proposition expressed by a sentence, and then you have the bridging principle associated with a kind of standard factual semantics. And the combination, then, of the proposition express and the bridging principle gets you the characterization, the particular speech act associated with the sentence. So not, not the general type of speech act, but the actual individual one associated with some given sentence. So that's a factualist view. And I, I take it that, as I've characterized expressivism so far, you have this same picture, but all I've done so far is said that the speech act is not a straightforward assertion of a proposition. And the negative component would also suggest that the meaning of the sentence is not a proposition. But I haven't said specifically what either the semantic value associated with a sentence is or what the pragmatic bridging principle is. I've just said, look, we want some theory in which we come out at the end with a speech act, which is something like urging some kind of probabilistic belief. And the job in being explicit about this kind of expressivist semantics is specifying these two things. But I want you to note that, and this is the point I... I I think I almost have never seen in the literature, although I'm sure you know, many people are aware of it and just don't like saying it, is that we have two unknowns here. We have you know, a question mark here and a question mark here. There is going to be many possible combinations of semantic values and pragmatic bridging principles which will end up with the same speech act. So we're going to have a lot of theoretical choice. And that's why I think to some degree you see in this literature where people use non-propositional kind of semantics all these different options and, and, and no real way of determining which one is better. There's a lot of open choice and it's not clear how you um, figure out which way to go. So that is my basic view of how you do an expressive semantics. And now I'm just gonna do a very simple instance of it. I mean, the, the, the kind of like language I'm talking about is just so simplistic, it's, um, it's a bit embarrassing. So what I'm going to talk about is a language where you just have atomic sentences. So you have, you know, which I write with lowercase letters, but there are things like, you know, the euro is doomed, say. And they're meant to be facts. And then you have one operator in the language, which I'll write with a capital P. And that means sort of it's likely or it's probable that. And I don't have any logical connectives so far, but you can apply the operator to one sentence and just once. So you can say things like, so A, B, and C are well-formed sentences, and also there's like, A is likely. That's the entire language. Um, now, just to give like what I take to be the simplest possible semantics for this language, which could be characterized in expressivism once you get the right bridging principles, I'm going to, you know, sort of define semantic values for all these different sentences. Um, the definition for A, B, and C is just what people normally think. These, are, these have truth conditions, they're facts, and so their semantic value, which I write in the handout using the, oh no, denotation symbol is um, just the set of worlds in which it's true. Um, now, the question then is, what are the semantic values of sentences that have P 
P's in front of them. So P-A. And these sentences I call P sentences for the obvious reason. Um, we don't want them to be just sets of worlds, because if they're sets of worlds, then you know these things should express propositions, but that's a view we don't want. So the most natural thing to, to do, I think, is to say that they are themselves sets of probability functions. Um, and and this is a theoretical choice, but this is what, what we're choosing. Um, and um, particularly, they're the set of probability functions that make the proposition expressed by A likely. So you know, if A is the euro is doomed, then the semantic value of PA is the set of all the probability functions defined over the space of possible worlds, according to which the probability of the proposition expressed by A, that, that thing there, is greater than 0.5. So that's just you know, all the probabilistic functions compatible, which if they were yours, you would think it's likely the euro is doomed. Um, and that's really the entire semantics. But we need, as I say, the bridging principles. Just assigning formal objects to sentences does not explain how you use a language. Um, and, but the bridging principle, I take it, for the first sentence, it's going to be disjunctive in the sense that we have one bridging principle for factual sentences. So for factual sentences, we have whatever we use for normal language. You know, it's either urging a belief or you know, putting something forward as being true or whatever you want to say happens when you express a factual sentence. But then for these P sentences, it's going to be, in order to get the sort of answer we want, it's going to be urging the adoption, uh, urging someone to have a credence function, which is one of those in the semantic value of PA. So, so if there's a P sentence, it has a semantic value. And asserting the P sentence is a way of urging the audience to adopt credences, which are, which is one of the things in the semantic value. And then, you know, when you have the system, you get a view on which probabilistic sentences don't directly express propositions, but rather they urge people to um, have certain credences. And they're not equivalent to just the proposition, I urge you to have that credence. Let's hope, anyway. Um, So, I should say, by the way, that the presentation is going very well over here. <laughs> um, there were some good animations just then. <laughs> so, um, all I've tried to do so far is just say, like, how you do, in a fairly explicit way, an overly explicit, almost, um, expressivist semantics for probable for talk about probabilities. Now, I don't know whether it's right or not, but I just want to talk about now one of the more common um, objections to this kind of program, which is um, usually called the Frege-Geach problem. And in fact, the form that the Frege-Geach problem is often stated is a little different than the one, the, the, one the, the way I'll state it, but we can talk about that form later if you want. Um, One, one, one way of stating a kind of frege each problem is to say, look, you've given us a theory in which statements like it's likely that, um, it's 
So likely the euro is doomed doesn't express a proposition, but rather urges some kind of attitude. Well, that's great. You know, you've dealt with a single like um, like an atomic sentence, but you haven't yet explained how sentences like this can be um, embedded under logical operators and how we can reason with these kind of sentences. And without doing that, there's a problem. That, that's my interpretation of the frege Geach problem. Now, there's a particular version of it, which, I'll, um, which I think is often put forward by people, and which I think is just a result of a failure to use my preferred framework, which I think everyone should use. So the version of it that, that, that is often put forward by people is they say, like, look, you've associated these kind of speech acts, well, you've associated sort of urgings with probabilistic sentences. But you can't, you know, it's not clear what it would mean to have a disjunction of different, you know, um, urgings or, or suggestions or whatever. I mean, of course, like, you know, maybe there's some view of, of disjunctions of suggestions, but it's not clear what it is. It's, you'd have, you have a lot more work to do. You have to give what some people call a logic of attitudes to explain how these things work. Now, I think that to have that objection is to not have the framework I'm using. Because in the framework I'm using, you have these principles here, which relate semantic values to speech acts, but then you also have a semantics. And a semantics takes you from perhaps logically complex sentences to some kind of abstract objects, your semantic values. Now, the issue about how logical operators works is a semantic issue. And semantic issues are resolved before we get into the, the realm of speech acts or so on. So there's no such thing on this kind of structure of having disjunctions of speech acts. I mean, maybe you could also define that kind of thing, but that shouldn't be the problem with embeddings of these sentences. Rather, the question is just, what is your semantic treatment of these logical operators, and how does it relate to the, 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 the pragmatic principles? Um, and so the answer to, well, so, that version of the Frege Geach problem, then, I think is not a, a, a legitimate worry. However, we still are, we still owe the presser of this, you know, particular problem an account of what, in fact, the semantics of the logical operators are when they operate on the kinds of objects we have. And we have to give that and show that it's plausible and show that, in fact, the semantic values that it gives us once we apply the, the, the bridging principles result in the right kind of speech acts associated with, with, with sentences of this sort. So th there is something we have to do. And in fact, I think there are significant problems um, in actually doing this. And I'm talking about one kind of problem, although I, I can imagine other kind of problems also emerge. So luckily, the kind of problem that I want to talk about requires very little um, more semantics, but a little more. So let's see. Um, what we need, and I, in the paper, I think I talk about negation, but here I decided to even cut negation. I just want to talk about conjunction I and mean, disjunction of these um, P sentences. So, and in fact, I'm going to talk about a system, and this can't be what our real language is like, but a system in which you can only combine P sentences with other P sentences. You can only have conjunctions of P sentences, disjunctions of P sentences. You can't have a conjunction of a P sentence with you know, a factual sentence. You can't say, John's tired and it's likely to be raining. Um, obviously, English isn't like that. 
I actually don't think this raises any really significant issues, but you need a lot of kind of technical machinery to do this stuff. Um, I, and, and I refer in the paper to some work by Seth Yalson, which actually I think gives totally adequate technical solutions to those particular problems. But Problems arise even before we, um, we have that. So you know, not doing that is not cheating in my in this particular context. So if you want the semantic value of uh, disjunction, say with a little disjunctive v, what I'm going to say is there's just one meaning for the disjunction, and it's given by the standard compositional rule, which is that a disjunction just leads to set-theoretic union. So what this means is, in the, in the usual case, when you have like two factual propositions, you know, it's raining or it's snowing, the meaning of it's raining is a set of worlds where it's raining. The meaning of it's snowing is a set of worlds where um, it's snowing. And the meaning of it's raining or it's snowing is all, all the worlds which are in either of those sets, which is the worlds where it's raining or snowing. So that's the standard thing. And I'm just going to do exactly the same thing here, except for sometimes this applies to sets of credences, and sometimes this applies to um, factual sentences. So Once you do this, which I take it is actually really the only plausible thing to do, well, there are lots of different ways of writing out, because if you don't do something like this, I mean, this is just classical disjunction. If you don't do something like this, you're saying disjunction is non-classical when it applies to other semantic values. And I think that is problematic, especially when you start to mix different types of sentences. But those are worries that go beyond the scope of what I have here. But let me just say why even this seems very problematic. Um, take a sentence two. We're really making progress here. Um, Either it's likely the euro is doomed, or it's likely um, the dollar is doomed. So I, I want to highlight a particular reading of this sentence. That I think it's a little bit, it's a complex sentence, it's a little ambiguous, but I, I want to highlight a particular reading. The reading is the one in which, say, like, you know that one of these currencies is doomed, but you've kind of forgotten which currency it is. So it's not the reading which you, maybe you can get, maybe you can't, in which you think, like, look, one, it's likely that one of these currencies is going to fail, but rather the reading where you think like, okay, there's one of these currencies such that it's likely that it's going to fail. That, that's the reading I'm highlighting. Um, I, I, I think it's a perfectly legitimate reading. I think if you want to bring this problem out really clearly, you should use quantifiers instead of disjunction, and you get the same kind of issues. So instead of saying like, you know, at least one of the students in the class um, is likely to... Um, to to pass the exam. That's, you know, there's clearly a reading of that in which you're not saying that, like, you're not saying that it's likely that at least one student will pass the exam, but rather you're saying, like, look, there's some group of students who, who, whose number is greater than one, or, or at least one, who are all likely to pass the exam, and maybe the others aren't. Um, so th those are the kind of readings I'm interested in. I, I think they exist, but we can talk about that if you don't think so. Um, and if you just sort of crank through our semantics, what you get as the semantic value of this sentence is the set of probability functions that either assigns greater than 0.5 to the proposition that the euro is doomed or assigns greater than 0.5 to the proposition that the dollar is doomed. Now, 
And then if you apply our bridging principle, what you get is that a suggestion to say that, um, well, saying either it's likely the euro is doomed or it's likely um, that the dollar is doomed is a suggestion to adopt a credence which is in that set. Now, that's good in the sense that like, we don't have the kind of frigga geech problem in principle. We have a speech act associated with this, with this you know, slightly horrifying, disjunctive, probabilistic um, sentence. However, um, there is a problem in that that doesn't seem right. That is, that speech act doesn't seem to capture the right reading of this. That is, and I think it will come out a bit more clearly when I talk about belief, but like, even now, I think it's possible to see that when I'm putting forward this disjunction of probabilistic claims, I'm not urging you to, as it were, adopt one of the disjuncts. I'm not saying like, okay, look, you need to change your beliefs so that either you believe it's likely the euro is doomed or you believe it's likely <laughs> that the dollar is doomed. Because I don't even know, possibly, which one of them is doomed. I don't believe that, I don't believe of either of them that it's likely it's doomed. So I truly can't be suggesting to you to adopt these more specific beliefs than I, ha than I have myself about these probabilities. That would seem a bit ridiculous. Just like in general, when you say A or B, you're not suggesting that the person believe A or believe um, B. And so it seems like the same principle um, applies here, but it's not clear. But on the sort of bridging principles and so on that I've written out, you do get this consequence. And I, I have a, I, I should, yeah, I should give one note to the literature, which is that I, at least I first discovered this problem in some work, which is forthcoming by Eric Swanson in the Journal of Philosophical Logic. Um, although I'm sure one can find many earlier instances of this in various forms. And, um, and also, especially in the literature, there's a lot of discussions of, um, of negation where exactly the, the same kind of problem arises. Um, but, but, but I don't want to talk about that here. So there's, there's some different responses that, that I've seen in the literature to this problem. So um, Swanson himself suggests that you have a non-standard um, disjunction when you're combining probabilistic sentences, which I think it's a bad idea. Um, Mark Schroeder is discussing this same problem. Um, well, I'm not sure what he says, but he says something, something else. So <laughs> something that is not what I'm about to say. Um, so it might seem like right now where we've gotten to, there's this expressivist view. It's fairly easy to, to, to spell out. There's no problem in principle about including the logical operators, but it seems like when you do everything the totally straightforward way, you get these wrong, you know, wrong predictions about what these sentences mean. And it's not clear how to get the sentence to mean the right thing without going to a lot of extra work, like having a non-standard disjunction apply to probabilistic sentences. And then it's not going to be clear how you combine probabilistic and non-probabilistic sentences. So things don't look that good for expressivism. So you might think like, okay, look, the problem is, you know, <laughs> Expressivism is false, and in fact, sentences like it's likely that it's, the euro is doomed express um, facts of certain sorts, just ineffable facts, hard, ones that, you know, maybe a little hard to characterize, not, not really ineffable, just like a lot of work. Um, and um, and so the lesson is, you know, we, we should abandon the expressivist program. So, I mean, although I'm very sympathetic to abandoning the expressivist program, um, I'm not sympathetic to that response to this problem, because I think this problem arises for belief descriptions of probabilistic sentences, regardless of whether you're an expressivist. So let me just try to state the problem for that. Um, 
So what I have on this handout, which I haven't referred to yet, but you might have noticed some similarities between what's on and then what I say, um, what I call belief transparency. And this is a, a basic principle about what it is to ascribe beliefs and probabilistic sentences to people, which I think is, which is clearly semantically independent of expressivism, and I think actually much more plausible than expressivism. That is, I think belief transparency is really the only game in town, and so we should accept it. Um, so belief transparency says that if you have a probabilistic um, sentence, then, you know, which I'll call P, then saying that X thinks P or believes P um, is expressing a proposition which is true exactly in those worlds where X's credences are ones that satisfy, that are in the semantic value of P in the way I defined earlier. So in other words, when I say, um, what is my example here? Ingrid thinks it's probably raining. I'm, that's true just in case Ingrid's credences are such that she assigns a probability of greater than five to the proposition that it's raining. And I, I think that's intuitively quite plausible. I mean, that is like, that's what it seems like <laughs> these sentences are saying. But you might note that it's in tension with factualism already. Because if you're a factualist, you think that it's probably, it's probably raining expresses a proposition. And you think that then ascribing belief to Ingrid in this proposition you know, sort of as a default, should be just saying that there's some proposition she believes. But saying her credences satisfy a certain constraint is different than saying she believes some particular um, um, proposition. So expressivism doesn't, I mean, sorry, factualism doesn't kind of naturally capture um, this fact. Rather, you need to do some work to try to capture the intuitions that seem to support belief transparency. Now, I think there's really only one obvious thing um, to say here, which is that the meaning of it's probably raining, when it's embedded in Ingrid thinks it's probably raining, is that according to Ingrid's credences, rain is likely. And then if you have some kind of transparency principle about Ingrid knowing her, her own credence, so that whenever her credence that it's raining is high, she believes that her credence that it's raining is high, you'll get some kind of equivalence between um, Ingrid believing this fact about herself and Ingrid's credences having a certain property. That, that's, I take it, the kind of factual sign. In fact, if you look in the literature on epistemic modals, which is always connected to a lot of things I'm saying, you, you'll see, in fact, explicitly that line uh, adopted by um, contextualists in various, uh, in various contexts. Um, well, I, I, I think this is a horrible view. Um, I, I, I think that there are a number of problems with it. Um, I have to wait till I get to the next slide there to see what they are. Um, <laughs> So, um, I mean, one thing is, is it's taking three to be an attribution of a belief about herself um, to Ingrid. And that seems strange. It seems like Ingrid is not, in the first instance, having a belief about her own credences when, well, that is, you're not ascribing to Ingrid a belief about her own credences. You're ascribing to Ingrid a belief about something directly or something like that. You're describing some kind of mental state, which is not a self-directed mental state to, to Ingrid. So that's a slightly sort of ineffable point, but I think it's correct. I mean, another, this is another point that Seth Yassin makes in 2011 paper is that, you know, you might think that a dog can't have thoughts about itself, but it can think that, you know, there's probably food coming. So, um, you know, that, that's another kind of similar sort of philosophy of mindish point here. Um, Another thing which is also due to Seth Yeltsin is 
And these are sentences 4a and 4b. It's a little bit complicated. But if you think about sentence 4a, England imagined it was probably raining, but it wasn't raining. I take it that's ascribing a kind of incoherent imagination um, to Ingrid. You know, she's imagining something that doesn't really make sense to imagine. I mean, can you imagine that it's probably raining, but it isn't raining? You can imagine, you know, it was probably raining, but it, it isn't raining. But can you imagine, like, at one instance that it is probably raining, but it isn't raining? To, to me, that seems incoherent. But I think, on the other hand, it's perfectly easy to imagine that Ingrid can imagine that she believed it was probably raining, but it wasn't raining. So at one time. So the thought goes, you know, I mean, she's, she's not imagining this in a first-person kind of way, of course. She's imagining, like, you know, thinking of Ingrid sitting there, thinking, like, ah, uh, it's probably raining. But in fact, it's not raining. That, that's, I take it, a totally coherent imagination. Now, if you think that um, it was probably raining in these belief attribution contexts just mean you know, you believe it's probably raining, then there's some kind of tension in explaining why I take it 4a seems a little weird, whereas 4b seems like a perfectly coherent thing to imagine. On the other hand, I think there are things to be said about this, but I'm convinced, so I'll move on. Belief transparency is true. Now, if belief transparency is true, then we have the same kind of problem that we had before. Um, so sentence five, Ingrid thinks that Either it's likely the euro is doomed, or it's likely the dollar is doomed. On belief transparency, this is true just in case England has a credence, which is in this set of credences associated with disjunctive set sentence. And that's sets where either a probability of greater than 0.5 is assigned to the proposition the euro is doomed, or a probability of 0.5 is assigned to the proposition that the dollar is doomed. Now, If that's right, then 5 can only be true if either 6a or 6b is true. That is, if either Ingrid thinks it's likely that the euro is doomed, or if Ingrid thinks that it's likely the dollar is doomed. Because what we've got is that Ingrid has to have a belief, which is, which is in, this, um, in this set of uh, beliefs. And all the beliefs there have one of, these, one of the other features. So that's a problem which, which happens when you just accept belief transparency and that and try to use a kind of standard treatment of disjunction under these belief transparency things. Now, I mean, there's a lot you could say about this. You could try to deny that um, belief transparency applies directly to disjunctions in this way. You could try to give some kind of alternative semantics as a factualist of what's going on here. I'm certainly not saying this is a decisive objection, but I'm just trying to point out that there are plausible principles take you into a problem, even if you don't go all the way to ex accepting expressism, expressivism about um, probability statements. Merely getting the belief attributions light, right is problematic. Um, so that, I take it, is one kind in two different forms of, of a genuine kind of Frege-Geach problem with expressive. And that is, it's a problem of dealing with embeddings of prob probabilistic sentences um, under logical operators, even just simple disjunction. Now, as I said, I, there's similar problems for negation, which um, actually Mark Schroeder has has written about extensively in, in his writing about um, moral expression, expression about moral talk. So luckily, I think this problem has, in fact, a very simple and independently motivated um, um, solution, which I'll um, go through before I'm finished. So. The first thing to note is that 
there's a very strong assumption that's been driving this problem, or any way that's been made. Um, and the assumption is that corresponding to any particular person, they have a perfectly precise probabilistic, they have a perfectly, a perfectly precise probability function which characterizes their credences. So the thought is that, and, and this is a thought that you, you find standardly in the literature, but you also find you know, the rejection of it standardly in the literature. The thought is that you know, I have my beliefs about different things, and they determine some unique probability function which assigns to every proposition a value between 0 and 1. So I have perfectly precise probabilities. Um, you might think that that's totally absurd, right? I mean, there's just lots of propositions which you might think that I have insufficient evidence, but there are no symmetries I can use, so it's not clear like how, to, how, I, how I know like, what probabilities to, to assign. I mean, in general, if you don't have evidence, you might think you use symmetric reasoning. But there are some things, like you might think, like, you know, I mean, I know a coin is biased a little bit, but I don't know how much it's biased. You know, what, 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 what credence should I adopt about like, what the probability is? I mean, you might think with, with symmetries that that should be 0.75, but it's not entirely clear. I might have some sort of ineffable evidence that it's, you know, a little less biased than like, you know, <laughs> it's, not, it's not all the way biased. So I sort of lean towards one-sided scale. It seems like there are cases where certainly, certainly it's true that for normal people, we don't have precise credences, it would seem. And also it seems like possibly that even for like ideally rational actors, it's not, it's not an obvious proposition that they always should have precise credences. So, There are different ways. I mean, there's quite a large literature on modeling imprecise credences or um, mushy credences. But I'm going to use, um, and this choice is not arbitrary and matters a lot, although I didn't say so in the paper. But um, I'm going to use one particular way, which is to have credences, instead of thinking about a person determining a unique credence, rather think of a set of credences as characterizing their probabilistic beliefs. So you think of a, what I call a creedal set. A creedal set is just some set of credences. And you thought, the thought is that, you know, if I think that, you know, for instance, the probability that, that, that this coin um, will land heads could be anywhere from 0.5 to 1, then the set of credences characterizing my beliefs are going to be ones that assign all those different values. And I don't have, I, I, I don't narrow in on a particular one. So this is a kind of it's a little like supervaluationism, um, you know, if that's a helpful um, analogy. Um, any credence you have is a credence you have on all of the credences in this set of credences, which is representing your beliefs. So this is a quite standard model. Um, and if we have this model of what, in general, having a credence is, then the bridging principle we gave before which is you know, in the section on bridging principle called factual assertion, or, or no, um, it's P assertion, that bridging principle is not going to be valid because we no longer need to, we no longer want to characterize what it is to assert a sentence as asking people to adopt a specific probability measure because we're assuming now people don't adopt specific probability measure, rather they adopt sets of probability measures. Now, if that's the case, we need to slightly modify P assertion the only modification we need, though, is to say that you're asking people to adopt not a particular probability measure, so not you know, have their credences be assigned to, to characterized by a particular probability measure, which is in the semantic value of the sentence, but rather you're asking them to have their probabilities characterized by a set of probability measures, which is 
in the semantic value of the sentence. So this is exactly analogous to the way we think about assertion and belief when we talk about possible worlds. We, we, you know, if you think of this as like all of logical space, if I say a sentence like, you know, it's raining or whatever, there's some worlds in which it's true. And what I'm, the belief I'm asking you to have is not a specific belief in one of these particular worlds. Of course, no one's beliefs are ever that fine-grained. I'm not asking, and I, I wouldn't know which one it is. But rather, I want you to have some belief state inside this set. So I'm saying that we have exactly the same picture with regard to um, the creedal sets, except for instead of worlds here, we have measure functions at every point, measure functions, probabilistic measure functions over the set of worlds. But it's the same structures. Um, now, the nice thing about this principle, besides working with the more easygoing conception of what people's um, credences are, is that now that we have this bridging principle, the problem with disjunction, the Frege-Gage problem with disjunction that we had before seems to go away. Because if I say, either it's likely the euro is doomed or it's likely um, the dollar is doomed, then I'm asking you to um, have a credence which is in this union of probability. So it's in the set of probability functions, all of which satisfy one of these two things. But, that, but if your credence yourself is a set, you can include in your belief that you get after you accept my assertion, you can, you can include some functions on which it's not true that the euro is doomed, but it's true that the dollar is doomed, and some, and some with the opposite, where you think the... Um, the euro is doomed, but not the dollar. So, and if that's representing, if that's your creedal set that you've gotten after accepting on my assertion, it's not one in which it's true that either the euro is doomed or that the dollar is doomed. Because of that, we don't get this bad result that a suggestion to believe that that is the characterization of the speech act of saying either it's likely the euro is doomed or it's likely the dollar is doomed is urging someone to adopt one of these two beliefs. That is the belief or the creedal state on which the euro is doomed or the creedal state on which um, the dollar is doomed. So that's the sort of very basic upshot of what seemed to be a kind of fix we maybe needed anyway, which is characterizing um, credences in some loose way, which didn't force people to have totally precise credences. That seems to give us the representational um, capacity to correctly characterize what these disjunctive sentences are urging, or at least prima facie, let's say. Um, I should say, uh, as a note, and this isn't in the paper, though, maybe it should be, there are a lot of treatments of mushy credences, or imprecise credences, um, on which you need to treat them as something like what we would call technically um, a convex set of probability functions. And if you, so Isaac Leva adopts this view, a convex set means kind of any mixture is acceptable between different credences. If you adopt that view, you won't solve this problem anymore. I, I won't go into the details because it's a little complicated, but, but, but that's, I mean, it's not complicated, just it's not gonna work without a slide. <laughs> but, um, but that's the, um, and I don't have the slide either, so it's not. It's, I, I, I can't blame the Aristotelian society. <laughs> I'm not doing that, but 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 I'm pretty sure that's true. Um, and I also give a revision of of um, 
belief transparency, which, which does the same thing. And the problem about belief goes away for the same reason. I'm not going to go through that in detail because I, I want it to be, you know, sort of like under 45 minutes. And I haven't, haven't done that, but I, 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 I'm definitely not going to go over an hour. So I, I'm going to stop quite soon. Um, so just a couple sort of closing things. That, that, that's, that's all the actual substantive points I want to make. I mean, a, a closing kind of maybe terminological question is, why do you want to call this this kind of view a non-factualist view or an expressivist view? And um, there are some, I mean, in some ways, this view looks a lot like a factualist view. That is, we assign these formal objects to sentences. The objects resemble propositions in lots of ways. There are sets of probability functions rather than sets of worlds. And then we characterize belief in these things as, you know, being in a certain kind of relation to um, a subset of the semantic value of a sentence. So believing a sentence is bearing the sort of credence relation to the mushy credence relation rather to, you know, a subset of the, of the semantic value of a sentence. This looks a lot like possible world talks. And so if you want to call this, you know, a non-factualism, you have to deny that or, or to say this is a non-propositional view, and maybe these terms are, are distinct, maybe they're not, I think of them as the same, you have to say that these sets are not propositions in a proper sense. And it's true that there is a certain subjectivity to these sets. That is, the, the inspiration for them in some degree is to model subjective credences. So that's kind of what you're now resting on in calling these things not propositions, the fact that they're subjectively determined in a certain way. But in other ways, they seem to be playing the proposition role. They're the objects of belief. We have this new semantics of belief in which we, we can um, describe beliefs in exactly as corresponding to sets of these measure functions. And so I, you know, I just sort of want to raise the question of, I, I think we need to be much more clear on what exactly non-factualism means, what the, you know, and well, maybe we should rest on the subjectivity objectivity thing, but, but I think we should be clear that that's what's going on if you adopt this kind of view. Um, I mean, just to say, on the Frege-Gage problem, I, I mean, I guess it should be clear that I think that there isn't a problem in principle with having a semantics in which you assign something besides propositions um, to sentences. That there's really, that what there is is Technical problems can arise, you might not get the right answer, but it doesn't seem like this project is kind of doomed to begin with, which is a sort of worry you see at least a lot in the literature on meta-ethics and discussions of each problem. This is, you know, this is a real, like, this is, you know, the really serious problem for expressivist views about ethical talk. I mean, I think, you know, expressive views about ethical talks might be implausible in lots of ways, but it's not because that you can't embed things that aren't propositions. Um, so I think I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you.